It's wonderful to be with you this morning in the Lord's house. April 8th, 1945. A date that for many of us probably doesn't mean a whole lot. It was Easter Sunday. So Easter Sunday during one of the most tumultuous times in history at the very end. Most people might recognize that that was about the time, not much longer, before the final end of the Third Reich, the last, if you will, German Empire, and Hitler's reign was to come to an end. But April 8th, 1945, what was that day? Well, in Flossenburg, small area of Germany, a Lutheran pastor was executed. Now that in and of itself may not strike anybody as particularly notable. Many people were dying during this time period. This was a period rife with death, destruction. People were dying every day. So what is the significance of this? Well, this man was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you may know him, some of you may not. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor who, though I would say has in many ways influenced my life. I also must say that I do disagree with him on certain theological points, but this I understand and this I admire greatly about him is the fact that during the midst of one of the most trying times that probably any nation has ever known, during the time in which the Nazi forces were taking over Germany, during the time in which their forces were mobilizing, during the time in which Hitler was beginning his reign of terror, and during that time when in many parts of the church in his day, in that time in Germany, the Lutheran church, were crumbling, kowtowing to Hitler and to the Nazi elite. He led a small disparate group of men and pastors to form what was known at that time as the Confessing Church, a church which in many ways fought tooth and nail, resisted passively the efforts by Hitler to not only steal the heart of the nation, but also steal the soul of the nation as they attempted to pump their ideologies into the pulpits of the land. This was the legacy of Bonhoeffer. He resisted passionately, zealously, this onset by the German forces. And he was a thorn in their side, and ultimately he paid for it in the sense that he was imprisoned. And finally, he paid for it with his life. He was martyred. So what is this about? Well, the question we have... Today, the question which Bonhoeffer poses for us, and the question which I've wrestled with ever since I first read his book, The Cost of Discipleship, is this. What is the place of the Christian in this world? What is the position that the Christian holds? What is his, uh, what is his status in this world? Particularly, how does he navigate between being a citizen not only of this world, but of the world to come? In some sense, every Christian is a dual citizen in one way or another. We are the citizen of the nation in which we reside, in which we are born. Or on the other hand, we are also, more importantly, the citizens of the kingdom of God. And there have been many ways that this has been responded to. Bonhoeffer represents one extreme, which is, of course, to give our all for not only seeking to preserve the state, but to win over the nation. On the other hand, you have many bad examples in history, and I think we have a strong tendency, we see it very early on in the church, to see a need to flee the world in every form and every fashion. 
to reject the world, to escape that one aspect, to, in other words, revoke citizenship to this world and wholly pursue the kingdom of God in this life. And I don't mean wholly pursue the kingdom of God in a positive sense. I would say this is actually a very negative sense. And what I'm referring to begins early on with Eastern asceticism. And what that essentially means is that there were certain men, certain men who decided that they would reject everything this world has to offer, all the comforts, all the pleasures, all of what normally involves living in society, and they would go off and live often in the desert as a hermit. And by this, they were seeking some sort of spiritual stature, some sort of spiritual excellency. And of course, part of it was the attempt to leave sin, abandon sin. But of course, one of the problems we see, and you can see this in their writings, is the fact that although they sought to escape the world by leaving society, leaving everything behind, and uh, in doing that, hoping to escape sin, nevertheless, so oftentimes sin found them. Because the fact is, while they could leave a sinful society, they could not leave their sinful hearts behind. And so say, for example, a man who struggles with lust, he goes off and he, he performs the attempt to go off as an ascetic, to go off and live this lifestyle of total self-denial. And yet while he has left all the trappings which entrap him in that, nevertheless, he has, has restrained his hands, but he has not restrained his heart. And so as a result of that, even in the midst of this attempt at self-denial, there is still sinfulness present. That was oftentimes the case in the Eastern tradition. In the Western tradition, it took the form of monasticism, in which men would go off and live in small societies or communities uh, as monks. And by doing this, they sought to leave the world behind, essentially, to pursue a heavenly calling in a distinct, rigid, heavenly society, if you will. And, of course, the same problems followed there, and Luther found this because he was also part of one of the monastic orders and had found very quickly that he could find no rest, no relief from his sinful heart there because while again they restrained the hands, they could not restrain the heart. So I would say those are bad examples of how to resolve this quandary, how to resolve these two extremes, these two spheres. On the other hand, there's a better example, and I would say, say a biblical example, that of the Apostle Paul. And what we see of Paul is the fact that, yes, he really does, in many ways, embody both aspects of his citizenship. He is a citizen of Rome, and he is a citizen of the kingdom of God. And in some ways, he uses and leverages his citizenship as a Roman citizen to the advantage that he might win people for the kingdom of God. So what do we see of Paul? We see that he engages people in the synagogue, but he also engages them in the streets. He uses his Roman citizenship to leverage opportunities to proclaim Christ to the civil leaders. He goes before King Agrippa, before Felix, and even seeks to go before Caesar himself, all so that he might give the law of God, give the gospel to these men, these men in civil authority. So those are examples of how we can resolve this matter, of how we resolve the, I guess, for lack of a better word, paradox of how we live the Christian life with this dual citizenship, how we live in a world in which we are citizens not only of this world, particularly of this nation, but how we also resolve how we live as citizens of another world of the kingdom of God. And of course... A good way to look at this here is to simply ask, what would Jesus say about this matter? And fortunately for us, 
the Gospels do give us what he says about this matter. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 12, looking at verses 13 through 17. And again, that is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And if you would, if you would please stand for the reading of the Word of God, out of reverence. And so the Gospel proclaims, Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let us pray. Dear and Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for allowing us at this time to come to this place to worship, Lord. We thank you for the right and authority we have by the blood of your son, Jesus, to approach boldly the throne of grace, to make our petitions known to you, Lord. And we ask at this time, Lord, that you would give us a mind which is geared towards worship, a mind that is geared to consider the things of your word, knowing that as your son testifies, thy word is truth. And in it is contained all that is necessary for truth, all that is necessary for life and godliness, Peter says. And we know that it is by which we know and we are testified of your son, Jesus Christ. For as he himself testifies, these scriptures testify of me. And so in this manner, Lord, may we consider these things. May we hear the word of the Lord this morning. May it visit our hearts. Lord, I ask you to allow each of us to prepare our hearts to receive it. I ask that you would be with each and every one that is hearing this morning, Lord, whether it be here, whether it be online, or however it may be, Lord, I just ask that you would allow them to hear the word of God and be receptive, Lord, that you would soften their hearts so that they may receive that which is contained therein, Lord, because we know that ultimately, while we may speak with elegance or cunning or any other defies manner of men, Lord, we know that uh, if the Lord does not build this house, they labor in vain to build it. You are the one that it needs to move this point, Lord. And if you don't move, nothing will happen. Lord, we just thank you for the cross. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and what he's given on behalf of sinners like us. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The first thing to keep in mind is that this is clearly a plot against Christ. This is an attempt by the Pharisees deliberately to entrap Christ. After Christ had resisted the challenge to his authority by the scribes and priests, we saw that last week in Mark chapters 11, chapter 11, verses 27 through 33, and also after condemning them by parable, as we saw in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, the priests and the scribes were enraged against Christ. The scriptures record that these men sought to lay hands on him at that time. However, because of the fact that the people were there and because of the popularity of Christ, they did not do it. Mark 12, 12 says, And they sought to lay hand on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. 
and they left him and went their way. The parable of the vineyard was a condemnation, we saw, of the religious leaders of Israel. They knew it, and they understood it. They understood clearly what our Lord was saying. This led to an immediate reaction of anger. And of course, in some ways that's human, in some ways that's natural, but nevertheless, that is what they did. Mark records that they attempted to lay hands on him, but they were restrained. As much as they were angered by his words, they feared the people and feared any repercussion upon them if they attempted to harm him. At this point, it was clear they understood that Jesus had a great deal of popularity with the people. He had the people, and that was what disconcerted them. The religious leaders went away, but they were not gone for long. It was this realization that Christ held strong sway with the people, which would inspire their next plan. After this, they would seek, rather than delay hands on Christ, to discredit Christ. These encounters, among others, made it clear to them that they would not be able to overcome Christ with an open confrontation. His grasp of the scriptures outmatched them, and they could not answer him. On the other hand, his growing popularity meant that they were unable to stop him with open physical force. Any attempt to do so would have led to outright rebellion by the people. If the people rebelled, then the, remote, the Romans would immediately squash it and then double down on the control of Palestine. And as a result of that, their power would have been further lost. This had happened before, and they knew what kind of trouble they would face if it was allowed to happen again. The governor of Palestine, Pontius Pilate, was a hard and unforgiving ruler. Pilate governed Palestine with an iron fist, and he had no tolerance for any dissent or any hint of insurrection. This aspect of Pilate's character was confirmed by the historian Josephus, who gives an account of Pilate's brutality. He records that Pilate set up images of the Caesars in the city of, of uh, Caesarea, which was something that offended the Jews. Because God had forbidden the making of images for worship, they protested loudly to Pilate for days. Pilate's response was to one day set some of his soldiers in disguise among the people. And when the signal was given, they drew their weapons and surrounded the Jews, threatening to kill them. The Gospel writer Luke records a similar account in Luke 13, in verses 1 through 2. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans, because they suffered such things. While the accounts differ in some details, both accounts give us some picture into the character of Pilate. He was a brutal ruler, even by Roman standards. We know, of course, from all our historical examples, that the Romans were often cruel and vindictive rulers. All this is really to say simply this, that the religious leaders had a reason to fear what might happen if insurrection were to develop. Nothing good could come of it. For, at least for them. So as the leaders realized they could not challenge Christ in open debate, and they could not risk taking him by force, they turned to their third avenue, deception. The parallel passage of Matthew gives us further narration on what happened after Christ finished his parable. Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel 
how they might entangle him in his talk. The plan was beginning to take shape at this point, and that plan was to try to ensnare Christ. They were going to come at him with a quandary and hope to entangle him with it. Luke at this point adds at Luke 20, 20, and they watched him and sent forth spies, which should feign themselves just men, that they might take hold of his words so that they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. The religious rulers, the scribes and the priests, the Pharisees would devise a plan to send spies or otherwise loyal men to try and ensnare him. These men would pretend to ask Christ an honest question when in truth their intentions were to try to trap him and deliver him, as the passage states, up to the governor. So who are the players involved in this matter? Mark records that it was a group of Pharisees and Herodians that came to Christ this time. Mark 12, 13 records, And they sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. Now this is an interesting pairing. These two groups which we see here allied together. For one, it must be understood that the Herodians and the Pharisees represented the polar opposites in religious and political life in Palestine at that time. The Pharisees represented the most staunch and literal aspects of Second Temple Judaism. They were zealous for God's law and were diligent in their reading and studying of the law. I think the villainous portrayal of the Pharisees in the New Testament often gives us, in some ways, a skewed view of the Pharisees. That's not to say they were, that the description is inaccurate. It is incredibly accurate. But what it does do for us is it gives us this picture that the Pharisees are just this absolutely, this, this group of people that's like um, just absolutely evil to the core, debased, just the kind of caricaturized villain we often see in so many uh, aspects of our popular culture. And of course, the Pharisees were absolutely a wicked group of men but not in any way more wicked than any other group of men. Although they tried by their own religious hypocrisy to hold other men captive, we cannot necessarily point to them and find in them some other example to judge or point fingers at. But I think one thing we have to remember about them is that they were, in so many ways, a passionate group, a disciplined group, a group that was very much full of religious fervor. They also opposed the Roman occupation of Judea vehemently and had consistently proven that they would give their lives in opposition to the Roman authority. Josephus described the Pharisees as in a capacity of greatly opposing kings. Josephus records an account of how when many of the Jews were compelled to make offerings to Caesar, over 6,000 Pharisees refused to make offerings and were subsequently fined for this by Herod the Great. When the wife of Herod's brother paid the fine, Herod proceeded to slay as many Pharisees as he could find. All this really to point out the fact that these men were passionate men. They were zealous men. They were men who were also willing to die for their beliefs the Herodians, in contrast to the Pharisees, were a thoroughly secular group. They were not at all concerned with religious practices. Rather, the Herodians were a political party 
a faction which was based almost entirely around their support of the Herods, and by extension, support of their benefactors, the Caesars. The Herodians were totally supportive of Roman rule and were the polar opposites of the Pharisees in almost every sphere. It would not seem logical or sensible for these groups to ally themselves together in any way, as we see here presented. Yet it is clear from the record we have here that they did. What this shows us, I would say, is the truly polarizing nature of Christ because of the fact that both these men, despite their hatred for each other, despite the fact that in almost every way they were diametrically opposed to each other, they represented everything about the other one that, was not, that they were not. So in almost every area that the Herodians hated, the Pharisees were that. In every way in which the Pharisees hated, the Herodians were that to the Pharisees. These men would have in all other areas of life hated each other despise each other, would have never in a million years allied each other in any way whatsoever. And yet we see here that Christ unifies them in their opposition against him. This is as much true today as it was then. There are none who are truly neutral with Christ. You are either with Christ or you are against Christ. This is something which unifies all who are outside of him, even those who might have nothing else in common save their opposition to the Son of God. He unites the atheist and the religious hypocrite. He unites the politically liberal and the politically conservative. He unites the anarchist and he unites the communist. Though each man may have reason to hate another for his positions or beliefs, every facet of unredeemed humanity is unified together into one single faction by this simple fact that they have an opposition to this one, Jesus Christ. All equally and alike are unified in their opposition to him. What this means is there is no sitting on the sidelines with Christ. You're either with him or you are against him. You stand with him or you stand with the world. There is no middle ground with Christ. There is no third option. There is no point of neutrality. There is no Switzerland that you can go to. Switzerland is always politically neutral in almost every conflict that has happened in Europe, but there is no such common ground that you can go to to hide or to shelter yourself away from Christ. You are either his ally or you are his enemy. You are either with him or you are against him. And you can be rest assured that you will have to face up for whatever side you are on. You will be called to account for the side that you take in this matter. And while the world does represent a substantial cohort, an influential cohort, a powerful cohort, and in many ways a cohort that by all temporal standards has total sway and control. Rest assured, the right side to be on is with Christ, not against him. Because despite all of the power, the might, the authority that you can see or you can imagine in this world, none of it will matter or none of it can compare to even one iota of the power which exists within Christ. And we must understand that and recognize this simple fact. You cannot stand in neutrality. We can say 
much as what uh, much as what was said by Elijah to the people, why halt ye between two opinions? If Baal is God, serve him. If God is God, serve him. But you can't halt between the two. You can't have both. You can't have friendship with world with the world and friendship with God. You cannot have both at the same time. You will either love the one or you will hate the other. There is no in between. So looking at the question this morning, our band of unlikely allies, the Herodians and the Pharisees, come together to Christ in order that they may test him. They ask him a shrewd question. It says in Mark 12, 14, And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God and truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? The questioners begin here with flattery. They say things which outwardly sound like respect, but in fact are said in disdain. However, there are truth in the elements of truth in the things they say, even if they are not here said honestly. The one they speak to is true. They could not have known how correctly and truly correct they were in that statement. In fact, not only was Christ true, but he was in fact the very embodiment of the truth, the one who stood before them would testify, would be testified by his disciples or he would testify to his disciples that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is true light from true light, and true God from true God. He is the embodiment of the scriptures, which the Pharisees regarded, and yet they did not recognize him for who he was. They also flatter him with the fact he regards no man. In other words, there was no fear that he had for them. He did not fear them. The people who were coming to question him were powerful men. They were the heavyweights in their day. You had the Pharisees who represent the full force of religious power in that day, and you had the Herodians who represent the full force of political power in that day. These people were the ones who were used to being in power and were used to people being afraid of them, and it greatly angered them that this man did not fear them. This man, a carpenter's son, from Galilee of all places, challenged their authority. They hated him for this. Also, they point out that he teaches the way of God and truth. This is the most disingenuous compliment they make to Christ. Clearly, they do not believe he teaches the way of God and truth. They are seeking to have Christ killed in this passage. And so they come here with this question, which is in fact designed to be a trap. They were not trying to learn anything here. They were not trying to clarify anything. They were not trying to settle some sort of internal argument that they had within themselves. They were not trying to gain some greater knowledge or understanding or insight. None of that was taking place here. All of this was designed and cleverly orchestrated so that they could entrap him. This is a cleverly constructed verbal trap, which they have devised for the purpose of trapping Christ and securing his undoing. Let's consider the nature of what is being asked. Is it lawful to give to Caesar or not? That seems like a fairly straightforward question. You know, when we think about that for a second here, what is the big deal? 
How is this their big weapon? Their trap in which they hope to snare Christ and bring him to ruin. Well, in order for us to understand this, we have to first consider the context of Judea in this day. By asking Christ this question publicly, these men were seeking to put him between a proverbial rock and a hard place. Because at the heart of the question is the issue of taxation. And taxation is a thorny issue. Our country was founded, more or less, over the issue of taxation. As it was said at one time, no taxation without representation. There were perhaps other issues at that time, but none as central as this one. Our forebears sought to throw off the authority of the British crown over the issue of taxation. Taxation has been shown in history to not only be contentious, but a violently contentious issue. And this was no less true in Judea in Christ's day than it was in 1776. So by asking this seemingly innocent question on the issue of whether to pay taxes to Caesar or not, they were seeking to place Christ dead center in the midst of an issue that was gradually boiling over and had boiled over multiple times before. You had on the one hand the Romans, who were the true power and authority in Judea at that time. They had conquered Judea and ruled Judea with an iron hand. The tax that was in view was the annual poll tax, which was required yearly by each member of the populace. Every 14 years, a census of the Roman Empire was conducted in order to number the total population of the empire. This census, first affixed by the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, was recorded in the Gospel of Luke at the time of Christ's birth. We can see that in Luke 2, verses 1 to 3. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. The purpose of the census, which required everyone in Judea to return to their ancestral homes, was for the purpose of taxation, specifically for this poll tax, which would be required of everyone in the land to pay yearly. The amount of the tax was one denarius, which was about roughly the equivalent of a day's wages at the time. This was a rather substantial amount of money that needed to be paid, which led to the tax being hated by the Jewish people. In part, the severity of the tax was the issue, but also that this tax was the very source of their oppression. The Romans levied taxes against them for the purpose of funding the very armies that held them in check and brutalized them. The Romans were, as I've said, a brutal people, and this is reflected in the attitudes of the Jews in Christ's day. There is a reason that tax collectors or publicans are so hated when we see them show up in the scriptures. These men were charged with collecting these taxes on behalf of the Romans. And they were usually Jewish men who had chosen prophets over their own people. And for this fact, they were hated in Israel. The Pharisees earlier had attempted to slander Jesus when after Matthew was converted, who was himself a tax collector, the man invited him into his house, and Jesus ate with him, along with many other tax collectors and sinners. This was scandalous to the Pharisees, 
and they, and they made Jesus out to be tantamount to a traitor. So if Jesus were to answer the question of whether to give tribute to Caesar or not by saying, yes, it is lawful, immediately the people would have turned against him. As much as the Pharisees and the religious elites were hated by the people, the Roman occupiers were hated even more. The Pharisees and the Herodians knew this, and they were trying to discredit Christ with the people. On the other hand, if Jesus were to answer, no, it is not lawful, this would immediately put him in danger from the Roman authorities. The Romans tolerated no questioning of their power. And any attempt by a prominent Jewish rabbi to speak out publicly against the Roman poll tax would have been dealt with swiftly and harshly. At this point, there had been a number of uprisings and rebellions in Palestine in the preceding decades. The rule of the Romans over the area was shaky at best, volatile at worst. Palestine in these days was a powder keg. In much the same way as Afghanistan has been for our nation in the past 20 years or so, that was more or less what it was like in Roman-occupied Palestine during that period of time. Volatile, shaky, violent, destructive, constantly shifting from one power to another. Rulers would come up, rulers would go down. And everyone who had any kind of authority in that area at that time was towing the line and were riding the edge of a knife because of how volatile things were, how dangerous the situation truly was. This land was teetering on the brink of another uprising at almost every turn. It is important to understand this to really grasp the gravity of the situation here. The weeks leading up to the Passover were a period of time in which Roman military presence swelled in Palestine and particularly Jerusalem, because of the fact that this was the time when not only religious fervor, but nationalistic fervor would reach a fever pitch in Israel. As these men challenged Jesus, the city was swarming at the same time with Jewish zealots. These were men who were radically devoted to the overthrow of the Roman rule and the establishment of their own independent Israel, of their own independent kingdom. And so what we have here is we have a, a city at this time and in this place that is full of these men who are ready to spring into another uprising, another revolt. Now, on the other hand, we have the Romans in the same place at the same time ready at a moment's notice to respond to it. So this is a truly volatile situation. If any signs of revolt are seen, the Romans are going to crutch it. Jesus' answer then is not just controversial. You know, we have the idea of controversy in these days. You can say some things politically or religiously that are controversial, get people stirred up. But this is not just controversial in that sense. It's just not going to get people talking. It's just not going to inspire some chatter around the water cooler. This is something which if he says these things, if he is not careful at this point, what could happen will unleash violence and bloodshed in the streets. I think that's something that's often lost because we read these passages. We don't really understand the full gravity of what's taking place at this moment. This is not just a question. And that's really the point here. This is not just an innocent question that is being asked here. This question 
could mean everything because what they're doing is they're going to a rabbi and rabbis, for one way or another, have authority, have some kind of authority. Their words hold weight in this part of the world. What he says does matter. And he is a popular rabbi, so the people will listen to what he says. And what he says will have repercussions. It will have ramifications. And it is happening at a time and at a place and at a moment in which it could never be more inopportune because at this very moment, this is the very match point upon which the next unleashing of bloodshed could occur in the city. But Christ doesn't play into their hands. Rather than answering the way they intended, he responds to their cunning with even more cunning than they. For though his enemies thought they had trapped him, they did not fully realize or understand who they were dealing with. For one, that they made the assumption they were dealing with an equal. They were not contending with another teacher or rabbi. Rather, they were dealing with the one that, as Paul says, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. They did not deal with one who was at all on the same level as they, but instead they dealt with the one to whom it could be truly ascribed, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. No, this one could not be taken by them in this way. What we see here is a thinly veiled challenge to Christ's authority, and Christ refuses to yield to them, but instead meets their challenge head on. They seek to challenge him in secret, but Christ calls them out openly. In Mark 12, 5, he says, But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt you me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. This verse makes it clear. They didn't have Christ fooled for a minute. He saw their true intentions, and he was going to make that known to those that heard it. He does not immediately answer their question, but instead responds with a question of his own. In doing so, Christ reasserts his authority. He has the right to ask the questions here, not them. He has the right to assert his own authority. He has a right to establish and I challenge them, not the other way around. And he rebukes them for their hypocritical attempt to assert their own authority. And as a questioning, he exposes them. Men do not naturally submit to the authority of God, or to really any authority in that matter, but specifically to the authority of God. It is in our nature naturally not to yield. Years ago, I learned this in dealing with Mormon missionaries. Inevitably, the question always goes to authority. They ask in some form or another, wouldn't it be nice to have some authority to direct us on the meaning of the scriptures? Yes, the scriptures are authoritative, but how can you make sense of them? Wouldn't it be just as great to have a prophet that could offer authority, offer guidance on these things? To which the response was, and always is the same. The final authority in all things is God himself. And what he has said is evident. The scripture is evident. 
that the source of all authoritative direction is the word of God, that which God has said. We can see that in first Tim- in second Timothy 3:16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That which God has said is authoritative and it is binding. And any new revelation, if such a revelation were ever to be given, must align with that which is already said. God does not contradict himself. What he said about his will and his character will not be contradicted. And so the result is that the prophets of the Latter-day Saints, or whatever they call themselves these days, I've heard they've had a name change, but anyway, or any other prophets or so-called seers or so-called revelators or so-called authorities, whether that be the Pope in Rome or whoever it may happen to be, it does not matter. The answer is always going to be the same. The scripture is authoritative. You are only authoritative in that you align with the scriptures. There is no other authority. And so we hold these prophets to the test of scripture, particularly of Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22 makes it clear that any prophet who speaks the word of prophecy and it does not come to pass is a false prophet. And Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5 tells us that the prophet which leads you after another God, or in other words, contradicts the nature and character of God as he has already been revealed. Even if his prophecies are true, and even if he certifies it with works and wonders and mighty miracles, he is a false prophet. This was, it was for this reason that Paul commended the Bereans, who when Paul came to them proclaiming Christ, and certifying it with signs and wonders, they did not immediately yield to that, but they searched the scriptures to make sure it was so. This is to say that God's authority trumps man's authority. There are many religious hucksters in the world today that usurp God's authority by asserting their own. There are many so-called prophets and preachers who claim to speak for God infallibly, and my answer to every one of them is that the only preacher The only prophet that stands on this earth today is the man who stands in the pulpit or on the street corner and proclaims the words of this word, the Holy Scripture, and proclaims the message of Christ, repent and believe the gospel. So we see here that Christ yanks the mantle of authority from under these men and challenges them with very simple facts. He asks them for a penny or a denarius. And it says they bring it. And then it records, and he saith unto them, Whose image is it? And superscription. Here, and no doubt the Pharisees hated this, but Jesus confronts them with reality. There is an absolute truth here they cannot escape. The one who mints the money is the authority which rules the land. And the currency by which these men bought and sold things bore Caesar's inscription. He is the ruler of the land. There is an absolute biblical truth that every authority, every ruler, in some form, is ordained and established by God. Isaiah testifies of this fact in Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it, I have purposed it, I will also do it. The testimony of the Lord is that he is the one who establishes all things. And that truly does mean all things. All of the affairs of men are ordered, guided, and directed by the sovereign hand of God. End of story. End of discussion. He declares what comes to pass. All things are ordained by him, and that includes kings and their authority. When kings go to Lord, go to war, he declares it. He raises up kings, and he brings kings down. He says of the arrogant king of Assyria in Isaiah 10, 5-6, Woe to Assyria! The rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil and to take prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So what we see there is a recording of the fact that God himself says of Assyria, who was going in to conquer the people, who is going to go in to enslave the people of God. He calls him the rod in my hand, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. God used the king of Assyria. God used him as an instrument to accomplish his purpose. Now, does that mean the king of Assyria is righteous? No, absolutely not. Does that mean that God will not judge the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria for that which he does? Absolutely he will judge, because as it says in the scriptures there, but he does not think so. He does not think that he is serving the Lord. He is doing this to satisfy his own proud, arrogant, boastful heart. That is what he is seeking to do. Nevertheless, he is an instrument of the Lord. And so that's something we have to consider for a moment. God is the one who uses all things according to his purpose. King of Assyria is the means which God is accomplishing his will on earth. God even calls wicked rulers his servants, for by them he accomplishes his providential works. And therefore, though the Pharisees hate it, Caesar is a God-ordained authority over them. And so they have no choice but to answer Christ. And so they said to him, Caesar's. Once Christ had trapped them, so they had no choice but to answer their own question. He responds, and Jesus answered and said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God things that are God's. And the scripture there records that they marveled at him. So let's consider that for a second here, what it says here. Because this is a popular verse and is an important verse that we consider. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Christ makes it clear. There is a role for both obedience to God and obedience to the civil magistrate. The Pharisees rejected the civil authority. Christ, on the other hand, affirms the fact that the civil government is, in fact, mandated by God. And we can also see that this is also affirmed by Paul. We consider for a second Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, 
Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, it's important here to consider a few things. For one, there are, in fact, three spheres, three areas that God has ordained of human life on this earth. And those three are this, the family, which was first ordained, the government or the civil magistrate, and the church. Those are the three spheres of authority. And, of course, the government does have its own proper sphere. Specifically, God has ordained government to restrain evil and to punish evildoers. Romans 13, 4 says, For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So the proper place and the proper authority in this manner for government is the punishment of evildoers. And in some way, by doing that and by exercising and wielding the sword, he promotes the general welfare and the public good. But I think it's also important to consider this second, that government's power is not absolute. Government's power is not absolute. For, for a second, let's consider what government's power is. On the one hand, it is derivative. On the other, it is delegated. And what do I mean by that? When I say derivative, I mean that all power that government has ultimately is derived from God. And when I say delegated, I mean that God has in some way entrusted them with a task. He has entrusted them with the task of wielding the sword for the purpose of punishing evildoers and promoting the public good. Since that is the case, governments are responsible to God's law. Governments are accountable to God's law. Governments can be judged according to God's law, and governments can be deposed according to God's law. God's law is the final authority. Government cannot overstep or violate God's law, and violations of God's law should be, in some manner, resisted. Government is ordained by God, and for that, they should be, in some manner, respected. Jesus, though he was not bound by this temple tribute, by, by a tax, in a manner, he still goes ahead and pays it. And this is recorded in Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. And the scripture says here, When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, that The sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take a fish that comes up first. And when you've opened it, its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. 
So a few points to make there. The temple tax was a tax which was constrained on all male members of the Jewish society at that time for the upkeep of the temple. And so it, they're asked at that point, Peter's asked, doesn't your teacher pay the tax? And of course he says, he makes a very clear point. The natural sons in this manner are not obligated to pay. They're free. Nevertheless, he goes ahead despite asserting that there is freedom in this matter with regards to his own observance of the temple tax. He goes ahead and he pays it. So there's two aspects of this verse here. One is the fact that we are to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We are to be in some manner subject to the government insofar as what they do is right, as what is correct, and what is proper. They do not have a right to overstep their authority. They do not have a right to step outside the bounds of that which is considered normative for government. I would have to say that in so many ways our government has taken upon itself the mantle of observing so many powers and authorities that were never given to any government to observe or to have responsibility over. There is no biblical mandate for a Department of Education. There is no biblical mandate for a Department of Health. There is no biblical mandate for even a welfare system. These things are extra-biblical add-ons that have been tacked on. Now, we can debate individually on each of these things whether there is merit to them being there. Nevertheless, these are not within the sphere and purview of government as outlined by God's law. God's law establishes what government's proper authority is. And in so many ways, the problem we have here is that so much of these authorities, which we are talking about here, were naturally and in the past rightfully in the hands of the other spheres which God had ordained, the family and the church. And little by little, over time, slowly and but surely, the government has chipped away. And so, in some ways, churches and families have abdicated their authority, surrendered the authority that was rightly for theirs, and have given up different authority and power to the government so that the government could then observe and execute those things for them. So there's a two-way street here. There's complicity on the part of both spheres, one for abdicating what was rightfully theirs and one for taking that which does not belong to them. But government is ordained by God for a purpose and we should observe it and hold to it as much as is possible. But God's greater interest here, I think, particularly in regards to speaking to these leaders, is about their hearts. God's greatest interest is the heart of man. And he says that, give to God the things that are God's. You know, God raises kings and he tears them down. Civil governments come and go. Civil authorities pass away. One day they're raised up, Another day they're torn down. They are not eternal. What is eternal is our position in God's kingdom. That is of greater importance here for each and every person to consider, are they a member of God's kingdom? Do they have citizenship there? Citizenship here is transient. It can come and it can go. It can pass away. But what is truly eternal is citizenship in that heavenly kingdom, which is from God. And we need to remember what we are as the church. We are a light in this world, a city which is set on a hill. Christ made it clear 
Light is useless if it is hidden. And salt is useless if it has lost its savor. And what I mean to say by that is so oftentimes we get this mentality and it was present in the early days with regards to the ascetics and the monastics, but it has continued on throughout the ages to come. And we have seen it even in our modern day. And I see so many churches, whether they realize it or not, adopting an ascetic mindset, which says that we are going to just hunker down in our little hole and we're going to plug our ears, close our eyes and wait for Jesus to come. We are going to just abdicate any right or authority to preach the gospel or to operate in this world in a meaningful way to be a power and authority here. And we are going to just hunker down and hide until the end of days. And everything's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And true, it will get worse. Scriptures say that very clearly. But that does not mean that we need to operate on a defeatist mindset, which says that we are going to hide in these four walls and leave the world to its own devices. That was not the mentality of Paul. The Apostle Paul was one who recognized the fact that we are salt and we are light. And he recognized that, yes, he was a Roman citizen, but he was a citizen of the kingdom of God. And he utilized his Roman citizenship, even though it would ultimately cost him his life. He leveraged that so that he could go before powerful men and mighty men and civil magistrates and preach the gospel to them so that they would hear this message and hopefully they would repent and they would believe. And in many ways, we need to follow that example. We need to follow that path which says that we are going to, yes, we recognize we are a citizen of this world. We are a citizen of this nation. But in being a citizen of this nation, we need to recognize that we are here for a purpose. And our purpose is, again, to be salt and to be light. And if you hide that light under a bushel, it is useless. It has no power. If salt has lost its savor, it is good to be thrown out. So we need to recognize that and realize that about how we move and how we operate in this world. And, and it's truly an important message, a pressing message at this time, because the fact of the matter is things are moving in such a way that things like what we are doing right now are in no doubt, I suspect, going to be challenged. Even such things as the gathering for public worship, I expect at some point will be challenged. And we need to be stand ready to meet that challenge. In the midst of growing oppression, growing tyranny, and growing totalitarianism, the response is, on the one hand, we do recognize that God has ordained government for a purpose, but God also ordains the deposition of governments for a purpose. He does ordain kings to be raised up. He also ordains kings to be brought down. And so in recognizing that, we also realize that in the midst of that, in the midst of the ebb and flow of empires and powers and authorities, there is one power and authority which remains for all eternity, and that is the kingdom of God. That is Jesus Christ. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So our cry needs to be in the midst of this day and age when we realize that we may have to make difficult choices and sacrificial choices in many different ways, in many different places, in many different contexts, but we will have to make these choices. Do we 
bow to men or do we obey God? And our response needs to be that of the apostles. We must obey God rather than men. We must recognize that. Government is not the final authority. Government is an authority. And we obey it as far and as long as they operate within the confines of that which they have been given by God. When they overstep that, I believe it is our call to resist. We must obey God rather than men. If they violate God's law, if they command us to violate God's law, we must not do it. We must recognize that. You know, I brought up the I brought up the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer this morning, and I think he's influenced me in many different junctures in my life. I've I've considered his story. I've read his his biography. I've read his books. And you just have to sit and think, what an incredible story. A story of resistance, a story of giving everything for the sake of the gospel in some manner. The man believed that he was serving his God, and he went to the grave for those beliefs, even in the midst of his opposition. And I think that's a pressing message for today. Because in some ways, I expect it is not simply one for the history books. It is a story for today. It is a story for this hour. It is a story for now. So, in summing it up, do we obey God or do we obey men? Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for allowing us to come together at this place to uh, worship, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your power and your authority. We recognize that ultimately all authority in this world, whether it be the authority of the household, the authority of the church, or the authority of the civil magistrate, all of it is derived ultimately and, and, and comes down from you, Lord. It is derived from you. It is given to those spheres by you, and they must recognize that. They cannot overstep the bonds of that which you have ordained. The Father in his home cannot overstep the bounds of that which you have ordained. His authority only stands as far as you have allowed it, as far as you have ordained. The, the elder or the pastor in the church must recognize the same. He is bound by the law of God. His authority only extends to the law of God, and he cannot overstep it or countermand it. And same for the civil magistrate, Lord. His authority is derived. It is delegated from you. And as a result of that, he cannot overstep that boundary. Lord, we would just ask that you would be glorified. We know that in all reality, there may be trying days ahead. I believe that, and I feel that. But we also must recognize that you go with us in the midst of it, Lord. We are citizens of this world, it is true. We are citizens of this land, but we are also citizens of your kingdom, Lord. And then we'd be able to take use of our citizenship in this world for the purpose of spreading your gospel, Lord, to the othermost parts of the world. That is our goal, that is our mission, and that mission still stands. And may we not be a church that cowers, may we not be a church that fears, May we not be a church that hunkers down in the midst of oppression and tyranny. Rather, may we be those that are bold 
even in the midst of hardship, resolute even in the midst of trial, certain even in the midst of this age. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and what he's given on behalf of sinners like us. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.